0: Well, as Pastor Ted mentioned, um, and thanks PT for not stealing my thunder. I'm always nervous of that when Pastor Ted does that, but that's the first thing I did when I walked in. I thought, he knows what I'm going to preach. Is he going to spoil it? But he didn't, thank you. Um, Since he he raised the issue, I'll go ahead and share it with you. My plan is, during the Sunday evenings that I have the privilege to, to preach here, Um, is to walk us through a series of sermons that I'm calling The Neglected New Testament, um, exploring the letters we overlook. So I want to do a study of the shortest and most brief letters in the New Testament, which would include things like 2 John and 3 John and Philemon and Jude. So my goal is for this week to consider 2 John with you. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, um, it's on page 125 if you're a visitor and using a pew Bible, and it's only one page, the shortest letter in the entire New Testament, all of 13 verses. So we'll be looking at 2 John tonight, and, and Lord willing, take a look at 3 John next week, and then when I come back um, to preach in Sunday evenings later in the year, we'll pick up Philemon and Jude, and hopefully get to spend some more time on those letters. Second and Third John will just be one sermon apiece. How do you lose your voice? One girl named Brittany recently posted the following on an Internet website. Just a warning, Internet is wide open for sermon illustration. So kids, anything you post out there could end up in a pulpit one day. So just want you to know that. Brittany writes, I have a presentation at school coming up, and I would like to know the best... Most effective way, people have lost their voice. She's dead serious. There are obvious ones such as screaming and yelling, and I've read on here that you can gargle Drano. It makes me a tad bit nervous. And to be completely honest with you, I don't know if I trust that. Good, Brittany, I'm glad you do not trust that counsel. Her question received several responses, some of them quite humorous. I'll give you a few of them. Try talking nonstop for as long as you can. If somebody asks you what you're doing, tell them you're trying to lose your voice. Also, try not sleeping for a couple of days or only getting about two hours of sleep on average for a few days. This is wise counsel. Here's another one. Argue with your parents. I guarantee you'll lose your voice. (laughs) Another wise sage of a person wrote, scream into your pillow for a few hours. Another person wrote, eat lots of cheese. I don't know what in the world that's all about. And I thought the most helpful word of counsel, here's a thought, do the presentation. (laughs) Quit being a coward and get it over with. Well, not only can people lose their voice, but churches can as well. Sometimes when we say that something or someone has lost their voice, we don't mean that they can't speak, but rather that what they say is no longer relevant. David Wells identifies two ways that the church can cease to be relevant in our world today. In other words, that the church could lose its voice. He writes the following, if the evangelical church doesn't want to lose its voice at this point in history, it must remember two points. In particular, number one, Christianity is about truth. And number two, those who say they are Christians must model this truth by their integrity. And when I heard that quote, I immediately thought of 2 John, because that is exactly John's burden. John is writing to perhaps one church, I'm thinking one church, whereas 1 John was probably a circular letter that went throughout lots of different places in Ephesus lots of different churches probably received it second john as we'll see in a few moments was written to a particular congregation and his 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 burden is that this church not lose its voice that they understand that christianity is about truth and that they understand that because christianity is about truth those who are christians must model this truth by the way They live their lives, and that is really what John's burden is because false teachers are in or have been in the church, have now gone out from the church, and John is concerned that their influence may still be around. So let's read John's second letter. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, And not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us, from God the Father, and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess... The coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face-to-face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Now, I just mentioned that this letter by John is written to a church. And the very first line is, to the elect lady and her children. You may be thinking, John's not writing to a church, he's writing to a lady. Is this some sort of strange love letter, kind of crammed right here at the end of the New Testament, just kind of slipped in, John's love letter to a special someone? Well, no, Without going into great detail about it, um, the elect lady, many commentators believe, is a reference to a local congregation. Some also take it as a reference to a specific lady. I'm more inclined to take it as a reference to a local congregation, and I'll give you five quick reasons. Okay, Number one, beginning at verse 6, you notice he says, And this is love, that we walk according to his commandment. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. If you had a copy of the Greek Bible in front of you, you would see that those you's are plural. He is making a reference to a group of people, not just a single individual. That's one reason. Number two, a second reason, is 3 John. If you'll just turn the page one over in your Bible, and notice how John begins his uh, letter to Gaius, and we'll which we'll consider next week, Lord willing. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. He's writing to a specific person, and he gives the name of that person. You might think, well, why doesn't he give the name of this lady? Perhaps because he's not writing to a lady. Number three reason is verse 5, when he writes, I ask you, dear lady, that we love one another. If you think about that for a second, John is writing to a lady and saying, I'm writing this letter so that you will love me and I will love you more. Sounds kind of strange. One of the most persuasive arguments is first Peter five thirteen. If you'll hold your place in first John or Second John and flip back just a couple pages to first Peter, look at the end of the way Peter ends his first letter with chapter five, verse thirteen, when he says, "She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen." Sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Now, who's the she? The she is a church. The church that Peter is presumably writing from is referenced as being at Babylon. That is in Rome. So this use of chosen and female, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, elect, being a reference to a church leads me to think that this is exactly what John's doing in his letter in Second John. That is, he's writing to a specific local church that he's referring to as the elect, as the chosen lady. Another reason is, isn't lady and bride and wife often used to describe the church in the New Testament? Ephesians 5, the church is the bride of Christ. So this imagery isn't necessarily completely foreign to us as we read the New Testament. But another reason, and lastly, is the end of the letter. Look at the last verse of Second John. The children... Of your elect sister, greet you. Now, I don't think John is saying, by the way, your nieces say hi. He's saying, the church that I am writing from also greets you. The children, that is the members of this sister church that I am writing from, send their greetings to you. So I've kind of showed you my hand now as far as what I'm talking about with the elect lady, but who are her children? To the elect lady and her children. Well, those would be the members of the local church that John is writing to and writing from. The children of your elect sister, verse thirteen, that's the church that John is writing from. And verse one to the elder, the elder to the elect lady and her children. So he's writing to a local church and its members in this letter. Now, before we move into the body of the letter, let's ask this question who's the elder? And why does John refer to himself as the elder? Well, why he refers to himself as the elder, I don't know specifically. But it could be a reference to his official position in the church, although most of the time in the New Testament, the word elder is typically translated plurally. So it could be a reference to the fact that he's a pastor. More likely, it's a reference to the fact that John was, as as far as we know, the oldest of the apostles. This is the same John, by the way, that wrote the Gospel of John, that wrote the uh, 1st John and 3rd John, and also received the Revelation. So... The Apostle John is referring to himself as the elder primarily because in the mind of these churches, he is an older man now. He is highly respected and revered as being a disciple of Jesus Christ. So it's his age and his authority that are probably primarily in view with this title that he places upon himself, the elder to the elect lady and her children. Now with that said, those introductory matters kind of dispatch. Let's move into the body of this letter. And as David Wells said in the opening quote that I read, if the church doesn't want to lose its voice, then it must keep two things in mind. Number one, Christianity is about truth, and Christians must model this truth by their integrity. And that's my outline. Those are my two points. Christianity is about truth, verses 1 to 3, and Christians must model this truth by their integrity, which is the body of the letter. So let's consider, first point, point number one, Christianity is about truth, versus. 1 to 3 let's read those once again to the elder to the elect lady and her children whom i love notice how many times he says truth here whom i love in truth not only i but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever grace mercy and peace will be with us from god the father and from jesus christ the father son in truth and love four times in three verses john says Truth, 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 and truth. You think he's concerned about truth? Yes, he's concerned about truth. It's because Christianity is concerned about truth. Christians are not concerned about opinions, religious ideas that people have. Christians are concerned about what is true, and so is John. Now, what is the truth? Well, First John, or Second John here, John writes and tells us, what he thinks of when he thinks of the truth. Look at verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. So when John is thinking of the truth, he's thinking of the teaching of Christ, both the teaching of Christ himself and the teaching about Christ by the apostles, those who were his disciples and representatives on the earth, appointed by him to carry on the work that he started, to found the, the church, to lay the foundation for the church, to lay the doctrinal and theological foundation that we are reaping the fruit of today, and which God has preserved for us even in this letter. So when John thinks of the truth, he thinks of the teaching of Christ, the teaching about Christ. Now, what is this teaching? Well, we have to take a whole survey of the New Testament to answer that question. But to sum it up, I think we're helped by the word of blessing that John issues in verse 3. He says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. Notice the certainty of that. It will be with us. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. That's different from other New Testament letters that just wish grace and mercy to be with us. This is certainty. It will be with us. From God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, in truth and love. Now, what's grace? Grace is God's undeserved kindness that he treats human beings with. If you came in this room and you think God owes you something and deserves, you deserve something from God, you do not know God. The Bible teaches us fundamentally that we are majorly in trouble with God and the fact that if we receive anything from him, it is owing to pure kindness on his part. So this grace that comes to us, comes to us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son. But a second thing is mercy. Mercy also comes to us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son. In other words, God withholds from us the judgment that we deserve. That was what our last hymn was all about. No condemnation. We deserve that. No judgment. We deserve that. And God sends His own Son into the world to live in our place to die in our place, to rise again from the dead so that we can be forgiven of all our sins, accepted into a right relationship with Him. And that results in peace with God. Peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son. We are no longer estranged from God. We are no longer enemies of God. We are no longer alienated from God. We have been reconciled to God. We enjoy a relationship of peace with Him all because Jesus Christ the Father's Son is did a work for us that we could never do for ourselves, namely live for us, obey the law of God completely, and die in our place for our sins, bearing in his body the penalty that those sins deserve. So that is what he thinks of when he thinks of the truth and he thinks of the teaching about Christ. It's all this whole message of who he is, what he's done. And we'll come to that more as we get into the latter part of the letter. So there is truth in the world. There is truth truth in the world. This truth is from Jesus Christ. It comes through Him. It's about Him, and it's recorded for us in Scripture. But notice the second thing. Not only is there truth, but this truth forms the church. This truth is what brings the church to be the church. Look at what John says here. The elder to the elect lady and her children Whom I love in truth, in not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. I love John. John is such a loving pastor. He loves these Christians. And why does he love these Christians? He loves them because they share a message together. They believe the same things. Isn't that what he says? I, whom I love in truth. It's not that I love these people because they're just sweet and kind to I me and we have fun times together. It's because we share an understanding of the truth. We have a shared knowledge of who God is, what Christ has done, what the universe is all about, what, 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 what is really real. We share this, and we have this identity together. But also, he says in verse 1, not only me but also all who know the truth. So the church is a group of people who know the truth. Does that sound arrogant? The church is a group of people who know the truth. Well, this sounds arrogant to many people in our day. In fact, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, encounters this frequently in his book, The Reason for God. Um, which is a very helpful book. It's a, it's a sort of presuppositional argument for the existence of God. It's, just, it's a very helpful, kind of apologetic kind of book, so if you're into that kind of thing, I would commend it to you. Um, in his book, The Reason for God, he's, he's asking this whole question, is Christianity intolerant for insisting that people must believe certain things to be a part of the church? And his response is no, because in order to be any kind of community, not just the church, you've got to believe certain things and hold certain things in common. And here's his response. He says, any community that did not hold its members accountable for specific beliefs and practices would have no corporate identity and would not really be a community at all. you understand what he's saying? In order to be a community, you have to share certain things in common. Otherwise, you can't be one. We cannot consider a group exclusive simply because it has standards for its members. Is there no way to judge whether a community is open and caring rather than narrow and oppressive? So now he steps back and says, Okay, since we can't say that there, since we can't say that there's a community without this kind of shared belief system, then how do we determine whether or not that community is oppressive or not, or evil, or too narrow? He says, here's how you can tell. Which community has beliefs that lead its members to treat persons in other communities with love and respect, to serve them and meet their needs? Which community's beliefs lead lead to demonize and attack those who violate their boundaries rather than treating them with kindness, humility, and winsomeness? We should criticize Christians who are condemning and ungracious to unbelievers, but we should not criticize churches when they maintain standards for membership in accord with their beliefs. Every community must do the same. And I think that's a good word because that's kind of in the air in our day. Now if you believe certain things if you hold to certain things if you say that these people are in these people are out because of what they believe then you're being too exclusive you're being intolerant I'm saying no you can't be a community without it. So it's not that we're being intolerant in fact we hold these things humbly we don't claim to know the truth because of our brilliance if we know the truth 2 Timothy 2:25 it's because God granted us repentance he gave us the ability to understand the truth we don't claim anything we are humbly in, we're humble in our acknowledgement that the only reason we know the truth is because God has revealed the truth and given us eyes to see the truth and ears to hear the truth. It's not because we're so bright that we saw it without his help. This idea of exclusivity in communities, then, is very offensive to many in our day, but it, you can't have a community without it. So John is stressing this, that the truth is what forms the church, that there is a truth, the teachings about Christ, and it forms... The church. Well, there is so much evidence of this here at our church, and I just want to encourage you with the fact that we have, by God's grace, a shared knowledge of the truth, and we love that, and that's partly the reason that we are a confessional church. Let me read you the Bethlehem Baptist Church Elder Affirmation of Faith. Jonathan pointed this, pointed this, to, pointed me to this, and I was just so helped by it. I just want to read it to you. This is what they say. Um, And I think it's a helpful summary of of why being confessional is important. He says, we believe that the cause of unity in the church is best served not by finding the lowest common denominator of doctrine around which all can gather, but by elevating the value of truth, stating the doctrinal parameters of the church, seeking the unity that comes from the truth, and then demonstrating to the world how Christians can love each other across boundaries rather than by removing boundaries which is one of the reasons Together for the Gospel exists. You have lots of different people believing different things that are sec- of secondary importance, but they hold the one thing in common, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they, they, while that while you can have a man like Lig Duncan sit there on a panel and preach, who's a Presbyterian, and then you can have Mark Dever, who's a Baptist, and they can love each other and not remove the boundaries that exist within their churches. Because they hold the priority of truth, but they've also been able to love each other across those boundaries. And that's a beautiful witness to the world. It, It upholds the value of truth and it upholds the value of love, which is John's burden in this letter. And I think it's just beautifully displayed there. In this way, going on with the affirmation of faith, it says, In this way, the importance of truth is served by the existence of doctrinal borders. And unity is served by the way we love across those borders. And I think that's a great statement of how we want to be confessional as a church. We want to elevate the value of truth. We want to hold up the standards of truth. But we also don't want, and we don't want to remove those boundaries. However, we want to be able to hold this and love each other, love other Christians with whom we might differ on things, across those boundaries, thereby upholding Christ's desire that we would all be one and demonstrate to the world that we are. So this is, this is demonstrated, this love for the truth and this shared knowledge of the truth by the fact that in general, I don't even have to say in general, by an overwhelming, even where I can't even think of an example, you trust and follow the leadership of your pastors as they guide you in the truth. That is such a wonderful testimony of what it means. We have never experienced schism, major schism, or division over doctrine. And I praise God for that. And may that never be. May that never, ever be. That would not be, that would exactly be contrary to the entire spirit of the new testament and pray that we would continue to hold truths that we hold dear but hold them humbly and hold them with a view of patience toward each other so that we would never be insisting and we would but we would cultivate a humble heart a listening ear a non-critical non-argumentative posture a non-defensive posture but that we would exercise charity to one another on issues of secondary importance with, with which we may even differ within our own church that our confession allows us to differ on. So we must keep in mind also that, it, by way of application, that our unity as a church, and if we forget this, we are prone to schism and division. We must remember that our unity does not rest on our preferences, our unity is not built on what we like or what we think a church should be, that's preferential. Rather, our unity is not built around either cultural preferences or even ecclesiastical preferences, socioeconomic status or educational background or family background or gender or age, but on the gospel. And to the degree that we keep that central in our own hearts, in our own lives, in our own thinking – as we sing songs about the gospel, as we preach in light of the gospel, as we think and live in light of the good of the gospel, we will treat each other as Jesus would call us to treat each other, which is not like the parable where, he, where the, the servant is extracting, he's treating his servant evil, even though he's been treating, treated so kind by his master. We don't ever want to get into that spirit. And you know how that spirit is created? By. Exalting preference, exalting status, exalting family background or some sort of similarity. Listen, we have hardly anything in common with each other. (laughs) And that's one of the most beautiful pictures of why the gospel is true. How can so many people rally around one thing and yet they are so different from each other? They have so many different preferences and so many different, you know, uh, even their personalities are so different. You know, there's no way that I'd be in a room with some of you all <laughs> if I wasn't a Christian. And you wouldn't either. We would not be in the same place. We wouldn't be in the same church. But I love you all because of your love for the truth. And that's why we should love each other. That's why John is loving these people. He's saying, I love you because I love you in the truth. And it, as long as we keep that central, that we love each other because of the truth, on the basis of the truth, on the basis, and we, we maintain this perspective of each other. This is so we have to, When we have conflict with each other, we have to maintain this perspective. If you have a conflict with another brother or sister in this church over personality or something else like that, here's the first thing you should do. You should think about how much that person has been loved by God. What does the gospel say about that person? How does the gospel inform your perspective on that person? And if you will take time to stop and think, this person is, has received grace from God. This person is a fellow heir with me of heaven, of the eternal, new heavens and the new earth. This person has been treated with undeserved kindness from God, just like I have. This person has peace with God, and the highest court in the universe has declared them innocent. And you start thinking about those things, you will find within your heart welling up a love for that person. And that, as God would have it, when we think in light of the truth and we function in light of the truth, we will offer a compelling witness to the world of how Christians who are so different and so much in personality, can nevertheless dwell together in unity. And we must maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Let me say this right now. We have unity as a church. Isn't that encouraging? We are united. All we have to do is strive to maintain it. That was so encouraging to me when I read that in Ephesians 4. I thought, we've got to work for unity in this church. Well, not exactly. We have unity in Christ. Now we just have to work to preserve it. And that's what John's encouraging this church to do. He's encouraging them to work to preserve the unity that they already have. So let's, let's remember that as we live together and how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. So that's the first point. Christians or Christianity is about the truth. The truth forms us as the people of God. The truth is what identifies us as God's people and it's how we ought to live um, in reference to one another. Now, point number two, Christians must model this truth and integrity. And there are two ways that we model this truth. There are two ways that we have integrity. Number one, according to this letter, number one, we walk in the truth, verses 4 to 6, and number two, we stand for the truth in verses 7 to 11. So I'm going to take each one of those points in turn. This is all under our second major point. So Christians must model this truth and integrity by walking in the truth, verses 4 to 6, and by standing for the truth, verses 7 to 11. Let's read verse 4. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Now, by that, he's not saying there are some people in your church that I know about are disobeying God. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. Like there's some Christians who are obeying Jesus and there are other Christians who are just generally not. I don't think that's what he's saying. Rather, what he's saying is, I have met, I have come into contact with some of the people in your church, and I'm so encouraged to find that they're walking in the truth. That's what he's saying. Okay, so I rejoice greatly. Isn't this encouraged? He he's so encouraged by this. He says, I'm so excited to see people obeying Jesus. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children, some of your members, some of the people that are in your church walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. So he's talking about walking in the truth, and then he describes two ways That we walk in the truth. The first way that we walk in the truth is by obeying Jesus' commands. You saw that, right? I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. So, this whole walking in the truth, by the way, walking refers to a lifestyle, the way you live, walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. God the Father has dictated the way we are to live, the way we are to live together as a church. And we are to walk in this truth. We are to live this truth out. And let me say this, as a prospective elder, and I can say this on behalf of your present elders as well, it brings your elders no greater joy than to find you walking in the truth. To find you not only knowing the truth, but living out the truth that you know. That is precious. That is a cause of great rejoicing. So I just want to encourage you with that. And now I ask you, he says in verse 5, that you basically continue to do this. This is not a new commandment. This is not something that you don't know about. This is Christianity 101. This is Jesus' big message, is that we as Christians have love for one another. So John is very simple, and this is, this is a repeated theme in John's gospel. It's a repeated theme in First John. It's a repeated theme as we see in Third John next week. It's over and over again. He is exhorting people to obey Jesus' commands and love one another, and that's what it means to walk in the truth. So how are you doing? How are you doing walking in the truth? Well, say so how do I know if I'm walking in the truth? Are you obeying the commands of Jesus, and are you living in love with fellow Christians? Are you caring for them? Are you showing them love? Just by a show of hands, how many of you took a trip over spring break? Anywhere, Maybe even out of town. Okay, a few of us are sprinkled out. Other ones are just not wanting to hold their hands up in church because that's kind of weird. Okay, so if you took a trip, you know that in order to take a trip, you need at least two things, right? You need a map, especially if you don't know where you're going. I need a map always, and often I need more than a map. I need my wife because I'm terrible at directions. But you need a map, and you need fuel. You've got to make sure you have fuel in your car, and you've got to make sure that you have a map. If you decide you're going to head, say, to Gatlinburg, and you're going to go that way, and you've never been there before, but you have, you're have, you all fueled up, and you come up to your, to your spouse and say, let's go. Let's get in the car. Let's go. It's like, well, where are we going? We're going to Gatlinburg. We've never been to Gatlinburg. Do you know how to get there? No, but let's get in the car and go. Well, chances are you're going to be roaming on some back road in western Kentucky, wondering where in the world you are, because you don't have a map. You have all the fuel, all the best intentions in the world, but... Without a map, it's not going to get you anywhere. You're just going to be driving around in circles. Same thing with if you have a map. Say, honey, let's go to Gatlinburg. I've got the map. We're ready to go. Get in the car. It's like, if you got gas in the car? No, it's completely on empty. In fact, when I was rolling into the driveway yesterday, it completely ran out of gas. Well, let's go. Are you planning on stopping to get gas? No, we'll just get in the car to crank it up. It's not even going to start, honey. But I've got the map. I know where we're going. Yeah, but you need Fuel. Well think of it think of take that illustration and think of truth is the map and love is the fuel Christians can be very zealous for the truth defend the truth they've got the map they know what the map is and they're going to get there but they don't have any fuel they don't love they're not concerned they're not gentle they're not patient they're just truth driven other Christians can have all the fuel in the world and have no map. I just think it's important that we love one another and that we do good to people. But they're never referencing the Bible as to what that good should be or uh, what the map tells them for how to love. But here's the glorious thing, is Jesus has given us a map, and by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God provided us with fuel. So we have both. In other words, he's given us the parameters. He's He's told us this is what love is, this is what love looks like. So you don't have to invent it. You don't have to wonder, what does it mean for me to love other Christians? Just read your New Testament, you'll know. Okay, Forgiving each other, bearing with one another's burdens, encouraging one another, confronting one another in love, seeking the good of the other, deferring to one another, honoring one another. All those one another texts, that's what we're supposed to be doing. So the map is in place. But also, the fuel is there. Part of the fuel is recognizing that we, we, we share the gospel in common, but also that we have the living Christ dwelling within our own assembly. Jesus is here in us. We are the temple of God. We have access to all the spiritual resources that we need to love each other and care for one another. So Christianity is about both truth and love. Love and truth are intimately related, obeying Jesus' commands and loving one another. Teachers of truth who live loveless lives will find that people reject the truth, and they'll say, they just reject the truth because they hate the truth. They might hate you for just reason. So truth is not ultimately served by loveless truth-tellers. But neither is biblical truth satisfied when teachers of untruth, no matter how loving they appear, their their lack of truth, of not having the truth and loving in spite of it will still destroy people because they're withholding from them the one thing that they really need, which is the truth of God. So the way we love each other the best is by serving the truth to one another. So biblical love is not satisfied when simple facts are just kind of coldly laid out for people. Like, you should just do this. You know what God requires. Or biblical love is not satisfied when we compromise the truth. So we hold those things together and our world today, our culture does not think that those two things can be held together, that we can hold truth and love together like that. Well, there are so many evidences of love at HBC. When people are suffering, how you rally around each other and care for one another. And I I commend you. That is an example of deep love for one another. We give sacrificially of time, money, food, hospitality. We're concerned for each other. We talk to each other. We ask each other how we're doing. There's also generosity in meeting pressing needs of the church. And no request seems to go unanswered. And those are all evidences of your deep love for not only the Lord but also for each other. But there are also areas that we can continue to grow as a church. We can continue to grow in, in desiring to walk in the truth. That is, take the truth that we know in our heads that we receive Sunday after Sunday and begin to walk that out concretely. This is why our care groups exist. Our care groups exist so that we might walk in the truth because it's not enough simply to hear the truth. We must apply the truth and live the truth out. So that's an area that we can continue to grow. Think of your care group attendance. Think of your participation in the life of your care group as not only you walking in the truth, but you helping other Christians to walk in the truth as well. We can spend more time with each other and build more relationships with each other. We can extend hospitality to each other even more by inviting each other into our homes. We can look out for our older senior saints, our older widows and widowers in our church, and make sure that they're being cared for and loved. And we can use the church directory in the best of all possible ways, which is to love each other on our knees by praying for one another. Well, with that in mind, let me conclude with this. The last verses, verses 7 through 11, I'm not going to be able to spend a whole lot of time on tonight. But here's the point. Christians must model model this truth that we believe in in our integrity by not only the way we relate to one another, but also by the way that we relate to professing Christians who do not hold to the truth, who have drifted, who have wandered. In verses 7 through 9, John talks about false teachers. Many deceivers have gone out into the world, verse 7, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in a flesh. That, in, in, in essence, is the same problem that they're dealing with in 1 John. They don't acknowledge the incarnation for what historic Christianity and the Bible teaches, which is that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God become man. They deny that. And John has the most severe of rebukes for them. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now, let me just close by getting quickly practical, and then, then I'll finish up and we'll pray. When he says in verse 10, which is really, the, I think, the occasion for this letter, verse 10 is the reason, ultimate reason John is writing. When he says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. That, his burden is, is that these Christians who have now gone out, or these professing Christians, they're not Christians, who have gone out from this church, and embraced error concerning the person of Christ, would return and try to exercise more influence again. And John is saying, do not even welcome them. Do not even receive them. Now that opens a big can of worms that I have no time to to consider tonight, but hopefully next Lord's Day we'll be able to kind of tack this on, and maybe I can consider this for a few minutes at the beginning of the next Uh, sermon with you just so we can think about what does it mean how should we how should we apply this to our lives how should we think about uh because um and interact with false teaching and things like that so we will come back to this just in conclusion may god help us not to lose our voice or lose our way and we will lose our way we can lose our way in really two ways by failing to walk out the truth in our own lives by failing to obey jesus commands and love one another and we can also Fail to walk out the truth by not standing for the truth and being courageous in the midst of error so may god help us to do that and let's pray together as we close father we are so grateful to you that salvation has come to us absolutely free but oh how much it cost you May we never forget just how much it cost the Son of God to relinquish the throne of glory, to come and live among us and receive rejection from men, but more than that, to take his perfect and spotless life to a cross and receive your wrath in our place for our sins. May we May we always be mindful of that. May it have the appropriate sobering effect on our hearts. And may you apply all these things that we've talked about to us. May we walk even this truth out in our lives in this coming week and for the rest of our days. In Jesus' name, amen.